Uh, thank you, Paul, for remembering that the scripture reading was Galatians 5, 1 through 15, and not 1 through 5. Uh, we'll be there for the uh, sermon this morning in Galatians 5, and we're continuing a series going through Galatians. Galatians, to me, is a book of the Bible that tends to be very overlooked and taken for granted because it seems to tackle issues that they don't appear as relevant as other letters to the churches. We don't have Jews who come from Jerusalem with its temple and its priests and all the things that happened uh, in the first century with the law still being available to keep, um, where Jewish teachers were going out and teaching Gentiles that they needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses religiously. So it can seem kind of irrelevant, but there is a, a wisdom even and a beauty in the fact that God allowed the Jewish nation to continue in a sense after Jesus had risen from the dead because really what this does is these issues and the tension with the Jews and the law of Moses post-resurrected Christ and the Gentiles, what it does is it, it helps us to understand principles much more clearly of faith, the nature of our obedience when it's rooted in faith, how to connect ourselves with grace, how grace works, what God's grace is, what it means to live in the spirit and the value of that identity and what that means for us. All of these principles that can be very difficult to understand become at least clearer, even if Galatians still is a, a challenging book in many sections, they're at least clearer and much more digestible as we see all of these things play out. A couple things I want to mention, um, apart from the lesson that I don't want to forget to mention, uh, there are a couple of things that I forgot to put on the board for the announcement. Scott is sick. And that's why he's not here this morning. And then Peggy Adami, uh, she is going through some pain and some severe issues with her back and her arms. And so she was wanting to be here this morning, but she's not able to because of that. So in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5, we're going to be focusing on the freedom of the gospel. I mentioned before with the heading underneath Galatians that Galatians, more than any other book of the Bible, really under, helps us understand how we need to see our freedom in Christ. That it's not just that we're forgiven, it's not just that we're serving God, but there, there's a very real sense where we are free through the gospel, and that freedom means something. And we're going to see in the beginning of our section here that it's, it's critical that we understand the nature of that freedom so that we can embrace it, so that we can live in it and thrive in it. And so we're going to be looking at chapters 5, uh, verses 1 through 15, but starting with verses 1 through 6. We're going to be talking here again about the nature of our freedom and what that means. So Galatians 5, 1 through 6. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit for you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. So what I have on the board here is it's critical that we understand the nature of our freedom that we have in Christ, that we can both embrace it so that we can stand firm in it, as I said in verse 1, but also thrive within it as well. 
Um, there's a common phrase that I don't necessarily like at all, encourage. But have you guys heard that phrase like, don't tread on me? So it's kind of like a, a political phrase, means like, hey, don't like get in the way of my personal freedom. You know, like as an American citizen, I have like certain freedoms and Brandon's laughing because I'm sure he's got a bumper sticker that says that. <laughs> but in the same way, in a, in a greater way, spiritual way, you know, as much as people want to defend their physical freedoms, their political freedoms, more than anything, we need to understand that we have a freedom in Christ where there are forces that are at work against us where Satan and people who teach false doctrines, where there are people who conduct themselves in a way where just the influence is not an influence that leads us to the humility of the gospel. Paul tackles all of those things here. And so we need to understand the nature of our freedom so that we can ourselves embrace it, but also stand firm in it in the midst of opposition or ideas or, again, influential behaviors or people that may endanger that freedom. And again, Paul deals with this issue that the Gentile Christians here are allowing people to influence them to think that in order to be saved and be commended to God, that they also need to become Jews. They need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And we've talked about this before, but I think it's helpful maybe to review a little bit of this here. Mainly in chapter 3 and 4, Paul tackled the fact that the law is righteous and it is good as a tool and as a testimony. The law could show us and point to the extreme nature of our needs, but it can't resolve those needs. It can't fix those needs. It can't bring us back from spiritual deadness. It can't pay the debt of our sin. It can't give strength to the helpless and the powerless. It can't reconcile and fix a broken relationship with God. It can show you why your relationship is broken. It can show you that you are separate from God, but again, it can't reconcile that problem. Rather, the gospel is what deals with those realities to resolve them. The gospel shows us the reality of our need, and it's only the gospel that can resolve those needs. It's Jesus, ultimately, who gives us life, brings us back from spiritual deadness. It's Jesus who pays the debt of our sin. It's Jesus who gives us strength in our helplessness. It's Jesus who reconciles our broken relationship with God. And I think, again, we we underestimate, again, faith is simple, but I think we underestimate how much is involved with with faith and growing an understanding of faith and how deep our dependence of God, on God, really goes. So again, the Gentiles who are keeping the law at this point and thinking they need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, when Paul and the other apostles, the other writers of the New Testament, deal with false teaching, that's when things tend to be most black and white, most emotionally charged and frantic in tone. So you notice in verse 2, you notice verse 4, Paul's not dealing with ambiguity here, right? And so just like in the other epistles where false teaching is dealt with, they deal with black and whites and absolutes. If you're going to keep the law of Moses and think you need to be circumcised, it's not just that this like puts you in some uncomfortable kind of danger where if you continue on, maybe this will become problematic. You know, it's not verse 4 that, okay, you know, you have a measure of grace still, but... You know, if you want to keep the law, you know, it just kind of gets in the way of a measure of grace. It's no, you, you've fallen from grace. You've been severed from Christ. If you go this route, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I want to think about, like, why this is, right? 
why the law of Moses, which was a religious teaching and was for the people of God and had religious authority for a long period of time, why it is that this would mean separation from Christ. I'm going to use an illustration that's not perfect. I think with all the illustrations I've tried to use, I've I've needed to really qualify things. Like, this is not a one-to-one illustration, but hopefully this can maybe be a little helpful. So when Eva and I, before we were married, um, our communication was limited. We lived in different places. She lived in Indiana. I lived in Savannah here. And not only were we in different places, thus limiting our interaction and communication, when we were together, not being married, there were a lot of boundaries to our interactions. There were a lot of things that we knew we could not do and should not do. And there were a lot of ways that we had to be really, really careful, you know, because of, you know, passion and lust and those things that we wanted to be very careful with our interactions to not ignite those things and all of that. So I want to think about this now that we're married. Is there freedom in marriage? Now, I lost a lot of freedom being married that I had while I was single. But is there freedom in marriage? When I was single, I had more time, more time for myself, more time for other things. But is there freedom in marriage? Yes. If you love the person, there's freedom, right? Now, think about this as well. What if I had an idea that I said, Eva, I think it would help our marriage work better if you were back in Indiana again, And we went back to the boundaries that we had before we were married. What would what would she think of that now that we're married? What would you guys think of that? You imagine all of a sudden Eva's not here, and I say, Oh guys, I I thought it would help our marriage if we stopped living together, if we stopped, you know, being together and communicating together, and if she went back to Indiana, we went back to the way things were before we were married, right? Christ didn't die on the cross so that we could have a distanced relationship with God. And what Galatians 3 points out about the law is it regulated a distanced relationship with God. And it emphasized that by law, you are in a distanced relationship with God. It's not giving you unity with God according to who he is. Again, only the gospel unifies us with God. Jesus didn't die at the cross and raise from the dead so that we would serve God at a distance, but in union with him. That's Galatians 4, verse 6. You are sons. The spirit of his son was sent into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, we've been given a fully unified, perfected relationship with God. We have to understand what that means and who we're to be in subjection to and the nature of that subjection. And moving on to verses five and six. The value of faith is not in how much knowledge we have or, you know, faith is not just believing the right things or participating in religious activity but rather it's an in fervent love. We see it in verse 5 and 6. You know, there's a, there's a heavy misunderstanding of Galatians and other books of the Bible where it's presumed that an emphasis on grace de-emphasizes obedience. That's not the issue here. The issue of emphasizing grace and the Spirit is not saying we don't need to be obedient. It's emphasizing the nature of our obedience. What kind of obedience And it's not that the Galatians were not being obedient. I mean, they were being obedient now to the law. But it was rather, it's the kind of obedience we are subjected to because we will always be in subjection to someone. And Jesus is a king who rules with dominion. But again, what's the nature of our obedience? So I want you to remember 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul writes, if I have the gift of prophecy 
and have all knowledge and know all mysteries. And you imagine how impressive that would be if a preacher literally knew all the mysteries of the Bible and they could make connections that just blew your mind. And it's like, I've never seen that before. And you think like, how amazing. Or if someone was really articulate and just they could, man, they could explain things in such a helpful way. But you know, that's, that's still not necessarily love. Can have all knowledge, know all mysteries, even have all faith as to move mountains. And if I have not love, I am nothing in 1 Corinthians 13. So in verse 6, what is the value of faith? What's the point of faith? Is it just that we believe the right things, that we know there is a God, Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and if I've been saved biblically, that I received the remission of my sins and I'm safe and I'm good? No, love's value is an expression of or faith's value is in the expression of love. That is the value of faith. That's what's going to be led into for the rest of the book. And I want you to remember Mark chapter 10, and if you would, turn back there just really quick. Keep your finger in Galatians 5. Um, But this is something that's been ringing in my mind a lot. Um, Knowledge is important, and I think if we put knowledge in its right context, we will obsessively try to internalize God's word and, and read it and absorb it even memorize it, but knowledge can easily lose its, its context, right? So it's been kind of ringing in my mind, what was Jesus doing with his disciples? Mark chapter 10, uh, verses, I'm in Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 10, 43 through 45, was Jesus caming just so that his disciples would become scholars, like better scribes than the scribes that already existed? No. It is not this way among you, and he's saying that it's not this way among you as in being like the lords of the Gentiles or leaders among the Gentiles. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. When biblical knowledge leads us there, knowledge has its right context. When our assembling together leads us here, our assembling together has its right context. When our relationships together lead us here, our relationships are centered on the right context. Jesus didn't come to make his disciples just great scholars who knew more than anybody else, but to make them more humble than anybody else. So that they would have a humility that was unique to their commitment to Jesus. So that their service to others was unique to their commitment to Jesus. Jesus came to make his disciples hardworking, humble servants, unlike anything anybody else could become without Jesus. And in verse, uh, back in Galatians chapter 5, in verse 6, I should probably mark it with a tassel so I can get back there easier. Galatians chapter 6, or chapter 5 rather, verse 6. For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything but faith working through love. He emphasized this back in chapter 3 when he was defining faith in contrast to the law of Moses and the importance of faith, what faith is, where he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor free. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And I think, again, he's just emphasizing faith eliminates all competitive or worldly advantages and attitudes. You know, so to be a Jew was not something to hold on to as some kind of empowered quality that made you better than the Gentiles. Faith eliminates all competitive attitudes, all competitive advantages, all worldly attitudes. 
And I think this kind of helps us understand how to think in a more relatable way about this in principle. Again, we're not, I think, tempted to keep the law of Moses as a religious law. But I think, again, in more subtle principle, this helps us understand what obedience of faith looks like compared to the obedience that is more self-dependent or self-empowering. Obedience that's not rooted in faith gives liberty to self, to pride, to greed, to worldly desire, worldly mindedness. And I'd like you to look at chapter 5, verse 24. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Only the obedience of faith that's rooted in grace can deal with those things. The obedience that is not rooted in faith gives liberty for malice, contempt for others. I want you to again look at verse 15 where we'll end. If you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by each other. Verse 26, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Qualities that I think we're spreading in the church as a result of them, thinking more in a worldly way rather than a spiritual way. Obedience not rooted in faith limits diversity among God's people, maintains divisive boundaries. It limits the degree of thankfulness and praise we can be giving to God. It limits the reach of the gospel, the power of the gospel, limits our perspective of how much we need the power of God to work in our lives. It limits the value of sacrifice and affliction. Look at chapter 6. And again, look at verse 12. We've looked at this again and again, but verse 12, those desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So he's saying like, look, if we just strip this all down, these Jewish false teachers, they just don't want to be persecuted. You know, being a Jew helps them maintain comfort and privilege and advantages that they just don't want to let go of. Obedience that's not rooted in faith gives liberty to complacency in our commitment to the gospel and sees little value in God's word besides a book of correct teachings and direct life applications. Obedience rooted in faith and grace seeks to crucify self. It seeks a humility that is only possible through the example and teachings of Christ on the cross. It seeks painful generosity, a desire to bless others based in hope and assurance of what God gives despite the immediate pain, affliction, or loss. It cultivates spiritual mindedness, compassion, mercy for others rather than contempt. It cultivates diversity. It destroys divisiveness in attitude and in mentality. It gives overwhelming value to sacrifice and affliction for the sake of the gospel and cultivates a continuously deepening zeal for God and sees his word as a window into his glory and fuel for faithful living. So in principle, again, I think we know that the Bible says grace is significant, we need grace. And I think it can be easy to pay a lip service to grace knowing what the Bible says about it rather than truly depend on it and live in a way worthy of it. That's what Galatians ultimately challenges us with. So let's look at 7 through 12, which involves, I think, some of the most severe language, which again, well, I'll finish that sentence first. The most severe language in the New Testament against anybody. But again, in the New Testament epistles, when false teachers are dealt with, there is always shocking severity involved in the tone. Second Peter, Jude uh, are examples of these things. 
7 through 12. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. So what I have on the board there is tolerating ungodly influences, behaviors, teachings. It inevitably destroys the culture that God intends for a local church. I think we see this again and again in the Bible. And this is summarized in statements made in more than one place. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. This is said in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 5, and always in relation to ungodly influences that are creeping in the culture of God's people and destroying the culture that God intends. So again, if we tolerate prideful attitudes, if we tolerate prideful teaching, false teaching, inevitably that ends up destroying and dismantling the culture that God intends. And I want to think just really quick about maybe more subtle ways this happens. So here in Galatians, it's seemingly something extreme. You know, the whole church is yielding to Jewish teachers saying you've got to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised. But maybe in a more relevant and subtle way, what what I've heard, and, and this hasn't happened here, but I've heard many, many, many stories of friends of mine who have experienced a brother in a local church who just explodes with an outburst of anger and doing that with brethren in conversations with brethren, they say just horrible things. Or a brother makes a horribly just racist comment and isn't corrected for it. And they're told in these kind of instances, or these things, well, that's, that's just brother so-and-so. You know, you just got to let him be. That's just brother so-and-so. Just, just let him be. You know, that's just how he is. Is that how we are supposed to treat each other? You know, that if somebody has just a flagrantly, brazenly, ungodly attitude... Is that just supposed to be something to say, well, that's, that's just brother so-and-so. What Galatians challenges us with is something inherent in the gospel. The gospel creates a culture of correction. And again, this isn't that we're, you know, being cruel to each other or just constantly trying to nitpick at each other, but that we just have to be humble enough, like Paul toward Peter in chapter 2, when he had to correct Peter for withdrawing from the Gentiles and eating with the Jews, that we just have to be humble enough to listen to each other and be willing to yield. There's something inherent in humility, the willingness to, to listen and to surrender for the sake of what is right in God's sight. I think pride can't see the glory of the freedom that we're talking about or applying the principles of the cross more specifically. So again, look at verse 11. I think Paul's giving a contrast here that where he stands in the gospel and where these false teachers stand are in two completely opposing sides. And he's going to continue to get into these things. Again, with the verses that we read in chapter 6, verse 14, when he's talking about the false teachers and they're trying to preserve advantages and comforts, he says, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And you remember the famous statement, I think one of the more well-known phrases in Galatians, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified to Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me and gave himself up for me. 
So again, pride cannot see the glory of utilizing the freedom that we have to serve. To serve even when it means sacrifice and to serve even when it means affliction. Remember 1 Corinthians 1 where he said, the word of the cross is what to those who are perishing? It is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Older brother said something one time that really impacted me and he was, it was a conversation related to difficult situations where what the Bible says, what the Bible counsels, is not easy and requires a great deal of self-sacrifice. And what he said was, the counsel of the cross will always seem like foolishness to people who are not interested in faith and the Lord. I think we've got to understand that, that we're not trying to look wise to the world, we're not trying to be wise of ourselves, but even if we need to look foolish in following the counsel and the application of God's word, we rejoice in that. And so again, pride can't see the glory of applying the principles of the cross. This isn't just a lip service thing where, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead. You know, we need to live a life that is worthy of that. But it's really as we're going in Galatians 5 and 6, it's where the rubber meets the road and we're called to love and to serve in a way not possible without obedience rooted in our faith. And I think the cross demonstrates the extreme problem of pride and the extremes that God will go to uproot pride. Paul was familiar with this. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where like Paul saying like some kind of weird thing where he went up to like the third heaven and heard utterances that are not lawful for man to speak. And, you know, and he mentions that because of the visions, a messenger of Satan was sent to him, a thorn in the flesh, and he appealed to the Lord three times that it be taken away from him. And then God said, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. And one of the important things about that is what Paul, I think, is getting to is he was tempted to pride. And to keep him from exalting himself, God was willing to cause Paul to suffer by this thorn in the flesh, whatever that might have been. God is willing to go to extreme measures to destroy pride. And if we see pride the way that God does, we will embrace those extreme measures, right? And with this, I want you to notice verse 12. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. The ESV is a little more clear that they would emasculate themselves, basically make themselves eunuchs. Um, I think if you really think much about that, that is shocking and extreme that Paul, as he's advocating love and serving and grace, would say, I wish that those troubling you would emasculate themselves. But I want you to remember Matthew 18. Do you remember what Jesus said about those who cause stumbling blocks? I think that's another section where you read over it and it's, it's easy to miss the impact of what Jesus is saying. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were tied around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus said it would be better if he had a heavy millstone tied around his neck. Was being a stumbling block a serious thing to Jesus? Was it something to be taken very seriously? And so I think what Paul is saying is better than death, but it's still 
humbling. So Deuteronomy 23 says that no emasculated person can be in the assembly of the Lord. So I think the idea is if, if they take so much pride in their Jewishness, if they're just emasculated, what they're putting all of their pride in goes away. They have no influence anymore, no ability to feel entitled by their Jewishness anymore. They're forced into humility. They certainly can't spread their ideologies to their children because they're unable to have children. So I think it's the idea of cutting off influence by extreme measure. And I think the more we appreciate the nature of the freedom we have in Christ, the more we will be, in a sense, jealous to preserve that freedom and indignant for that freedom. So I really want to argue that Paul's not saying something inappropriate. He is saying something that rather is very appropriate, given the circumstance and what's at risk in the situation. One last thing I don't have on the board here is emphasizing Paul's kindness and hope in verse 10. I have confidence in you in the Lord. It's really discouraging when you're facing a problem or you've sinned and you're treated as if that now totally defines you and you're absolutely hopeless. When I, when I worked at UPS, um, there were times where I made some pretty big mistakes and my employers would oftentimes, their method of correction was very demeaning and angry and making you feel like this, this wrong you've done, this mistake, it fully defines you now and you're just an absolute failure. And I think what Paul is seeing in the Galatians would be very encouraging. You know, that he knows they can change in the Lord. They've responded to the gospel before. They were running well, is what he says in verse 7. So they've shown that they are capable of having the right condition of heart and the right condition of faith. And so he's mainly, I think, encouraging them, like, you are capable of taking care of this problem and you can be more bold to stand against it, right? So I think hoping all things and believing all things with each other can really help us not only be more bold to serve each other as Paul is serving the Galatians, but also listen to each other if we'll have that nature of appeal and love. We'll finish with verses 13 and 15 here, 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, seemingly repeating what he had stated in verse 1. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, repeating what was said in verse 6. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. So what is the purpose of our freedom in Christ? It's that we have the greatest ability to serve each other. When I was single, there was a brother I knew who I was friends with who had gotten married. And I think I was dating Eva at this point, but I asked him... Um, what he's learning in marriage. Like, what's, like, the most encouraging aspect of his marriage? And he said something I've never heard before and I didn't expect. He said, I have more opportunities to serve than I ever had before. That is the freedom that we have in Christ. That's the freedom that only love and grace lead us into. Is we have more opportunity, more motivation to love from the heart. Not just acting out of guilt, not just doing things because, you know, something else is absolutely forbidden or social pressure says you need to do this to fit in with everybody else, but on the basis of what Jesus has done, acting for love out of a heart that wants to serve. Remember John 13, verse 34? Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. I think what's being advocated in Galatians 5 is a general love, but I think it's a specific love in this context, a love among the brethren. And I think that's what Jesus is advocating in John 13, verse 34. There's just something about loving the brethren that I think is even more difficult than loving people in the world. I think sometimes with people in the world, we give them like total liberty where it's like, well, I don't even know Christ. They're lost. So like, I don't expect anything. But with each other, we have these like super high expectations and brethren can act in disappointing ways, can be frustrating. So again, I think there's something, there's something special, but also critical in what the cross teaches us about the kind of love that invests in brethren. John 15, verse 12, this is my commandment, my commandment, singularly, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's what Paul is going to detail through the rest of Galatians. It's where the rubber is going to meet the road. Here is what the love that is rooted in Christ and comes from Christ, this is what it looks like. But just really quick, in verse 13, don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. What does pride do with the freedom we have in Christ? What does pride do? Freedom becomes a tool. More worldly ambition, more worldly priorities, more worldly desires, and will only act, again, if something is directly forbidden. You know, is it a salvation issue? You know, is that a sin? Or, again, if pressure of a local church, you know, kind of is really pushing me and the brethren won't be appeased unless I do this or think this way, but not motivated at all by grace, only by guilt. A person who is only excelling because of guilt, not by grace, is not living by faith. They may not be living by the works of the law of Moses, but they're certainly not living by faith, right? So again, what Paul is getting to ultimately are the deeper principles that we can relate to and can apply. But faith uses freedom as a tool to more fully invest in loving God's people. Faith uses freedom in Christ as a tool to more fully invest in God's people, just as Christ has loved each one of us. Did you know that the Jewish people were the most difficult people for Jesus to love? And I would argue, as much as it was encouraging to be with the disciples, that only added greater difficulty for Jesus to serve the disciples and to be surrounded by them when so often they did not understand him and they had attitudes that completely contradicted their fellowship with him when they abandoned him in his time of greatest need and as we read before the Lord's Supper, fell asleep at his time of greatest pain and emotional need. The most difficult people to love were the Jews. And yet when Jesus was dying on the cross, what came out of his heart was only greater mercy, greater commitment. And what came out of his love in his resurrection, greater commitment, greater mercy. To not have a desire and ambition to invest in God's people isn't just a problem of a couple things in the epistles that are being ignored. It's the cross itself. The cross itself teaches us fundamentally to invest in God's people and love them. And it's like chapter 4, verse 21, where Paul gets to the fact that he says, the law says this too. You know, you want to care about the law? You want to keep it? I'm teaching you what the law is supposed to teach you. And so in verse 14, what is the law supposed to point to? 
love. What Paul is teaching is the very thing that the law was meant to teach. And I want to note verse 15 as we bring the lesson to, the, to, to a close. If we're not deeply rooted in grace, verse 15 is the inevitable result. You know, a church can have what may seem to have peace when not facing conflict, right? But I've seen too many times where a local church may have a lack of conflict, but they aren't really united and they aren't really invested in one another. And what happens to churches like that when there is conflict? How do they talk to each other? How do they treat each other? What's the attitude that brethren have to each other? Churches like that divide when there's conflict and cannot be reconciled. And so it's not just doctrinal truth that unifies us. As much as the Spirit delivers truth, the Spirit teaches us to love the brethren. It's love and truth that cultivate true Christ-like, cross-centered unity. That's where we'll end the lesson for this morning. If you're here this morning and you are separated from Christ, there is always such urgency that is so easy to take for granted to obey the gospel and to be united with Christ. What God is offering for free is only for our good, is so needed, eternal life compared to eternity in hell. What is the use of ignoring that call any moment further. If there's anything we can do for you this morning to help you to respond to that call, or if there's any need that needs to be brought before the saints, please bring it forward while we stand and sing our invitation song. Amen.